Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette, and on this podcast, we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Starting today's episode with the otherworldly music of St. Hildegard von Bingen, just amazing. Uh, they're sung by the alto Sarah Ann Champion from the Marian Consort. I'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube video of that. It's just beautiful. I've talked about it before. I did a piece a couple years ago now um, for the Goethe Institute in public radio uh, about St. Hildegard of Bingen, and I went to the Peabody Institute in Baltimore, and I got to record um, a singer uh, in in a similar way where it was just her with, uh, with no accompaniment or anyone else and just this purity of chant of this otherworldly sound that Hildegard, um, you know, composed. Uh, It was just really amazing to hear that in person, but um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to hear that piece. But I wanted to start with that today because um, Hildegard is a medieval, early medieval uh, composer, and uh, I thought that would get us in the right mood for today's topic. Uh, A great interview with Dr. Grace Hammond, the author of the uh, recently published book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. Grace is so lovely, um, so smart and funny, and just ready to share this wild, wonderful world of (laughs) medieval spirituality with us. I think you are really going to get a lot out of it. And I think you'll be surprised. I think some of it will surprise you. Um, We're going to be talking about how medieval people conceived of Jesus as a mother, as a lover, as a knight, as a judge, Um, that, that this was a very artistic world, a world of metaphor and allegory. We encounter God so much through words and through text. 
but the medieval world, especially for your average churchgoer, was a symbolic world um, where you encountered God largely through art and through symbols and um, metaphor and contradictions and uh, all these things that we sort of bristle with, bristle at um, in our modern day uh, were entirely natural to the uh, medieval Christian. And it's fascinating to inhabit their world for a little while and then to come back um, to your own faith and to re-examine it and to question some, uh, you know, maybe some preconceptions you had about who God is and what Christ is like. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really, really excited for you to hear this interview. So, so I will keep the introduction short just so we can get right into the interview. And as always, you can just find me online at bornofwonder.com. You can go to Substack, substack substack.bornofwonder. I would love to connect with you there. So let's go ahead and enjoy this interview here with Dr. Grace Hammond, all about Jesus through medieval eyes. I hope you enjoy. So today on the podcast, I am so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Grace Hammond. She is a writer, speaker, scholar of Middle English contemplative writing and poetry, also the host of a great podcast called Old Books with Grace, and the author of the monthly medievalish newsletter over on Substack, lives in Denver with her husband and three young children. And uh, we have been having this podcast interview uh, in the works for quite some time. And so not only is she a great writer, but she's a very gracious person as well to, uh, as we've gone back and forth on this. So thank you so much, Grace, for being here today. Oh, I'm just so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me on, Katie. And uh, so, and also I should mention, of course, the topic of today is her new book, which just came out. It's called Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. So we're going to dive into this book. I highly recommend it. It's it's just wonderful and I think will uh, surprise and enlighten many readers. Um, but first of all, Grace, how did you get into this field? You have a PhD uh, in in middle uh, is it medieval studies. Yeah, it's in it's actually in English. In English, I, okay. uh, in yes. So I've worked on uh, Middle English, specifically fourteenth and fifteenth century writing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I got it. It was. I don't know. I feel like there are several, I tell several different origin stories. I just pick one of them. They're all true, but it's kind of a, you know, you're, you come to something through multiple paths uh, of interest. So I think what uh, I'd always loved history, I'd always loved reading, but I was much more of a novel person and, um, but I just loved it. And I majored in English in college uh, after a short-lived and unsuccessful stint as a psychology major trying to do something more practical. And um, my my lack of practicality really just pushed through and I became an English major. And so then I uh, um, started, I took this class that was called History of the English Language. And it started with, you know, very deep in the depths of time, uh, the beginnings of what we call Indo-European and all these root sources of English today. And I just was so fascinated by it. It was like a language puzzle that I was trying to figure out. Um, It was a whole new side of English beyond sort of the 19th century novels that I had always loved. 
and um, it, it was like a puzzle. So I, I was really curious about Middle English in particular. And then when I, I was like, well, I'll take a Chaucer course and, and learn more about Middle English because Middle English is the period between, uh, you know, like really early English, like Beowulf and um, for folks who have heard of Beowulf, and then later English like Shakespeare, which we sometimes call Old English, but really he's early modern English. Um, so Middle English is that period in between with works like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which many of us have read uh, in high school or college. So I took a Chaucer class and, um, and then I sort of meandered my way into a master's degree. And that was when I really, really fell in love with Middle English. Um, and then I somehow ended up in a doctoral program. It was one of those things where you just get deeper and deeper into the water. And then all of a sudden you're doing your doctorate in medieval English contemplative writing. And you're like, wow, this, this is amazing. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm also kind of baffled that I'm here. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's probably not a, a topic that that comes up for most people when they're 10 and they say, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? You know, medieval contemplative literature probably doesn't roll off the tongue, something you definitely discover for sure. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. It was a journey of discovery. Although my parents love to tell a story to uh, people, random people of when I was probably 10 or, or 11, you know, maybe late elementary school. And I was in the backseat of the car and I... And I said to them, Mom, did you know that um, A-L-Y-S is the medieval spelling of Alice? And they were like, what is this 10-year-old? <laughs> that's cool, though. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so, so maybe there was, was more, me, but... more origin than you thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm sure in this journey of discovery, you realize pretty quickly that medieval writing is really weird and wonderful and creative. And I think maybe people outside of, um, you know, outside the scholarly world, uh, people who are knee deep in this, like you probably kind of dismiss this period of time a lot of times for many reasons. But I think a lot of people would just assume that writing from this time is dry and kind of dull, but it's actually, um, you know, fascinating and so bizarre in the best ways. Um, and it was so compelling to read about in your book. And you give many examples of how medieval people wrote about and thought about Christ in very surprising ways. Uh, and I was wondering if maybe you could describe one or two, we'll get into sort of the details of the book, but one or two that descriptions of Christ that drew you in to this idea in the first place, if there was like a particular um, you know, image or allegory or something that just struck you and you were like, I need to, I need to learn more about this. Right. There was. Um, so one of the ways that I, that I really got in deeper into Middle English and, and medieval literature in general was that I was so struck by how Jesus was everywhere in, in this, in this time period, in this writing. And uh, that was especially striking given that I was in, uh, at the time when I started uh, working on this, I was in a giant state university English department that was very secular. So, um, and it was very interesting and exciting for me to dive in, sort of reunite some aspects of myself as a Christian working in an English department, looking at these, uh, looking at representations, seeing Jesus everywhere in literature. And uh, so that was something that, um, even before my doctoral studies, that I was really surprised by, delighted by, 
had a lot of joy and excitement. So um, when I started working on my dissertation years later in my doctoral program, I started working on the works of Julian of Norwich, who was a 14th century English contemplative writer. And she um, had these uh, visions on what she thought was her deathbed. And she uh, then began to write about them and think about them for many, many years after. And one of the ways that she saw Jesus and was thinking about Jesus and praying to Jesus was as a mother. And this was fascinating to me. And I began to think about this image and this representation of Christ a lot. And that was the first uh, strange and surprising imagery of Christ that actually, when you dive into it, has the a very long um, pedigree and deep roots in scripture. But mm-hmm. I had never noticed that before. That was so surprising to me. And it was a, a really delightful and strange and, uh, uh, and provoked a lot of self-examination in me as I began to dive deeper into this imagery of Christ as a mother. And so that was the, the chapter or the image that really kicked off the whole rest of the book was what else does medieval literature have, have to offer me mm-hmm. in all these images and representations when this one is so fascinating and interesting? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, people be surprised. There's a long artistic, you know, you can look up um, visions of Christ, you know, lactating. I mean, the nursing Mm -hmm. Christ. I mean, there's some wild, weird, wonderful things out there. And uh, your book introduces us to so much of it. And it's such a great reminder that our preconceptions of Christ, of God are such uh, are were products of our time, just as medieval people were. Um, and our individual families and just our backgrounds, like we have certain reasons why we think of God in the ways that we do. Um, in one of my college courses, it was a religion and psychology class, and they had us draw what we thought God looked like, whether or not we believed in God. You know, maybe some people didn't, but everybody had an idea of what God looked like. And some of them were like, you know, the stereotypical man in the sky, but some of them were you know, just absolutely surprising, you know, ideas. And we all had an image um, and they were all very different from each other. So that was like such a great reminder to me that, um, you know, that that these these ideas are not stagnant. And um, I think for medieval people, like how for for like the average, it's kind of hard to even talk about the average medieval person because they're the tiers of society were so divided. So like the average peasant would be very different than the average nobleman, average, quote unquote. Um, But in general, when people went to church, what would sort of be somebody in the pew? How would they be thinking of God? Um, like what, I mean, we, we have all these images we're going to get into, but is it sort is it the man in the sky idea or how, how were these people thinking about who God was? Um, well, I think you're absolutely right to point to that. Uh, it would depend on whether you were talking to a one of which which uh, they call it the three estates, mm-hmm. uh, which part of the three estates you were talking to, and it was the those who fought the knighthood and the the noblemen, uh, those who prayed the clergy, and those who worked the uh, mm-hmm. laborers and peasantry. So. Uh, it would be different. But what they would have all shared is that for almost all of them, 
their primary mode of encountering representations of God would have been through art rather Mm -hmm. than through reading like how we're more conversant with today. This is one of the most surprising things about the medieval era to most people today is that we are um, used to thinking of, oh, I, I get to know God through uh, reading, whether that's scripture or the works of the past, the works of saints. Um, this is how I get to know God is, is through reading a lot. But for medieval folks who were largely illiterate, although less illiterate than we tend to think, um, mm-hmm. but who were largely illiterate, the sculptures and the wall paintings and all of the stained glass windows of the medieval church were one of the most important ways that they were conceptualizing who God was and approaching God um, Mm -hmm. and approaching Jesus. And then the second uh, really important way that people were thinking about Jesus was through the Eucharist. So uh, your ordinary medieval person would only be taking the Eucharist about once a year at Easter. Um, Mm -hmm. But the uh but witnessing the host on a very regular basis and that would have been a very common way that uh, medieval people would have felt close to jesus and um seen themselves as uh, really knowing who jesus was was through the sacrifice of the mass um and then the the final thing i think is that given that uh, there were there were still sermons too, so people were getting to know Christ through sermons, which were mostly in the vernacular, even though the mass was in Latin. So it would really depend on um, you know what kind of teaching they were getting, who their priest was. That varied very wildly in the Middle Ages. Um, so like later Reformation critiques of of priests were not always ill-founded. Some priests were basically phoning it in and some were doing a really good job of, of teaching their parishioners and of walking alongside them in their formation and uh, of administering the sacraments. So I think it all, all of those factors influence how medieval people were thinking about Jesus. Um, but one really popular way would have been in uh, Christ in judgment mm-hmm. returning the Perusia, because that was on the wall of every church um, and a regular representation of Christ. So that's one that I discuss in the book. But um, as far as the imagery, that would have been a very popular one, as well as the the crucifix itself, which by the later Middle Ages was everywhere ubiquitous. So, mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, in the Middle Ages, too, it was we were still sort of thinking, I mean, Judgment Day was, you know, around the corner. I mean, it was Absolutely. really, you know, much in the air was like we could have another day. I mean, so that that Christ as judge in the last days was something that was seen as, you know, very close, uh, yes. close to the people. Yeah. Yes. And I think we can overlook sometimes, especially in the early church, uh, and that continued into the medieval church, but especially in the early church, how basically eminent they felt that Christ's return was yeah. Um, like, okay, this is literally any day now. Um, and so that was a hugely important image for them and, and uh, way of meditating upon the mercy and the justice of God. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we certainly see in Paul's Paul's writings, uh, you know, many times it's sort of like he's like, look, we're just biding our time, you know, so like, just, you know, pick the best way here to, to live it out. Um, but right. really, there's not much time. So maybe, you know, probably probably won't even be talking to you much longer. So um, exactly. That was certainly in the air. But uh, so yeah, so Christ is judge, really compelling image. Um, you also talk about Christ the night and other images. But of course, as you mentioned, Christ as mother uh, is really compelling. And I think Christ as lover. I think Christ as lover and Christ as mother are probably the two that maybe have the most shock value potentially for modern readers. Um, You know, I I did study some, you know, medieval images in in college and they were still shocking to me. You know, it was just sort of it's just sort of jarring. I mean, you just don't don't encounter these things. and of course, so many modern critiques of religion are, you know, paint God as very dry and remote. And I think uh, I would love to show some of these passages to, to some of these uh, <laughs> critics because I think they would be be pretty, pretty surprised. This is a sensual stuff. You start your um, Christ is Lover chapter with a quote and you say, you know, is this a romance novel or is this, you know, some writings from the Middle Ages about Christ? And it's the latter, very surprisingly. So um, why don't we start talking a little bit about this idea of Christ as lover of the soul. Yeah, so it was so funny. As you mentioned, I I begin this chapter with writings uh, from Mechtild of Magdeburg, who was a German, uh, she, she became a nun uh, towards the end of her life, but for a while she was living a, a vowed life of um, chastity, but not within a, a formal, um, like a convent. So, she writes uh, extensively about Jesus as her lover and very, um, <laughs> very romance novel-esque as you, as you read it. And even sometimes a little scandalous. As I was writing this section, I mentioned that I was in a coffee shop and I was like getting really nervous, like looking at the people around me, checking if they could see my screen because it was, it was quite, um, quite bodily and detailed. And so this is very surprising for us, as you mentioned. And I think we're used to some, this image still, you know, it's a very scriptural image. It has a lot of deep roots, um, but we tend to sort of sequester it today to either vowed religious like nuns. Okay. So Jesus is, is their bridegroom, or we talk about it like as the corporate church as a whole. So yeah, the church is the bride of Christ. Like we've all heard that before. Mm -hmm. Um, And medieval people believe both those things too. And definitely um, nuns had a special affinity to this image. But they also were writing of it in terms of every individual soul. And so whether you are a man or a woman, you are the bride of Christ. You are um, Christ's lover and he is your lover. And so this... Uh, creates some really interesting imagery, some very unusual for us ideas about the uh, real intimacy and tenderness of the love of Christ. Um, And it doesn't fit necessarily like what we would expect of like traditional gender roles, for instance. So sometimes you would hear this image and think that, oh, Christ is always like the protector or something like a traditional masculine role. But in a lot of these images, he is um, making a home for us in his love, or he is um, inviting us uh, to come to live in his side wound in traditional imagery of the crucifixion. And so it's 
some of it is is pretty jarring at first, um, but it ended up being a. I got to share this really beautiful poem in their Middle English poem called "Quia Amore Languio" that I really love, um, and it's all about the gentleness of Christ's love and His patience in waiting for us uh, as bridegroom and. And so, yeah, this image surprised me too while writing about it. I was kind of uh, hesitant about it at first and then ended up being really powerful. Yeah, and I think that that, um, that intimacy that you speak of is like the most like sort of compelling part of it is that when you really sort of when you get past the shock aspect of it um, and you sort of just think about if God is really like that close to you uh, in, in the way that like a you know, truly caring lover is that is like a beautiful thing. Um, And it's also surprising, though, I think, as you say, you know, origins here in the Bible echoing the Song of Songs, which you say was very popular in the Middle Ages, which I think was very interesting. Um, But I think, again, assumptions here, people think of the medieval period, pretty anti-body, pretty anti-sex, you know, and certainly there's some truth here, especially in the language around women and women's bodies. But there was clearly also an idea that the physicality of love at least had the potential to connect people to God. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Um, it it was uh, so folks like uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was certainly not like a, a huge fan of, of women or of women's bodies, both as a monk and also living in the society and the time that he lived in. Uh, was a, a huge fan of this imagery, or um, Pope Gregory the Great writing in the uh, in the early medieval church talks about how allegory is actually a way of um, a, a crane, kind of is the imagery he uses, a crane that can raise our understanding into divine things, and so. God's uh, God actually is merciful in using bodily language because it helps us to understand the character and the quality of the love of Christ. So, for instance, um, love is a very abstract word. We can use it in a lot of different ways. It um, can reflect our feelings um, about a really good pair of socks or about our favorite food. Um, and so, when we use it, when we over spiritualize the language of love, it can actually uh, obscure some qualities of the love of Christ. And so, uh, writers like Gregory and Bernard recognized that bodily language really particularizes the way that Jesus feels about us and brings home to us really forcefully and, and vividly how much God loves us as people and the tenderness, the intimacy, the closeness of that love in the way that um, lover, like that really uh, devoted lovers feel about mm-hmm. each other um, and feel about each other's mm-hmm. bodies. So it is very, it is shocking. It is surprising. And it also concretizes the nature of the love of Christ and the particularity of it in a beautiful mm-hmm. way. Yeah. I mean, you know, my toddler will say, I love you to me. And I'll be like, oh, that's so sweet. And then she'll also say, like, I love this spoon, you know, or something, you know, where you're just like, well, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, you know, it's, it's still nice. So it is the particularity and the intensity is something to emphasize and something to meditate on that I think that this image certainly brings out. Right. 
So this idea of Jesus as lover is certainly very surprising, and I think surprising in the physicality aspect, but it really shouldn't be that surprising to us if we think about things through a sacramental worldview, right? Because if we think that we, you know, that God cares about the fact that we are human beings that encounter the world through our senses, then this isn't so, such an out there idea to describe um you know, describe God in physical ways. Yes. And that's, I think that's exactly why they were um, comfortable with it in ways that, that we can be less comfortable is because the whole world was so sacramentally inflected for medieval folks that uh, they were, they were way more ready to see, even though they had definitely had hangups about, the body, they they had some things that I, I think today we would object to. Um, they were way more comfortable with seeing meaning beyond the immediate literal uh, meaning. And so the role of the senses and the heart and the mind working together to discern truth and to discern the core of things uh, they they were more comfortable with that, so they're more comfortable with metaphor in general than than we are in modernity. Um, we I think we get a little anxious about about uh, meaning and always trying to go for a literal meaning, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but medieval folks were very comfortable with metaphor and with the strangeness that metaphor invites, and that even that there's some. In metaphor, it's a little scary because there's room for misinterpretation, too. Um, but they were more okay with that space and that roominess there because they recognized that sometimes metaphor can teach us things that plain language can't do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes sense if you're saying that like they're also encountering images of God and things like that, primarily through art. Uh, you, you think that, that there's so much creativity there, so yeah. much... Uh, room for symbolism and expectation of it. So I think whereas we are, we're reading words, we're looking for, you know, exact meaning. We want, um, we're always comparing religion to science yes. and sort of looking at it to provide the same sort of exactitude. And uh, it sounds like clearly that was not an expectation during the Middle Ages. Exactly right. And you think about our, you know, and I'm so thankful for modern science has given us so many gifts, but you think about our fixation on like data on hard data or on information. And that mm -hmm. in, in some ways is very opposed to metaphor and to the workings of, of figurative language, because those are things that mm -hmm. aren't easily quantifiable that aren't going to give you a straight answer. They aren't going to say the answer is X. You're going to look at this picture of Christ and his side wound, or you're going to look at Christ on the cross, or you're going to, write about Christ as a mother and it's going to leave some ambiguity where you have to think and apply yourself well how how does this image uh speak truth what is it telling me that's different from the literal i don't actually believe that christ uh is giving birth on the cross to a literal baby but i have to think about what kind of birth is happening in his suffering on the cross who's being born um what is the relationship of of Christ to birth um, and to being born again, as as he himself says, you will be born again. You must be born again mm -hmm. in the Gospel of John. So, it makes for a very different experience of reading than than reading for information or reading for data. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that this next image I want to talk about, uh, Jesus as mother, um, really brings that out because I think that for people who are mothers, I mean, parents in general, but I think certainly mothers who have gone through the physical aspects of um, pregnancy and childbirth and nursing and things like that, um, these images are going to be really uh, hit close to home. And I think that that is um, something that I find very beautiful. Um, and I I absolutely, I, I love, love meditating on this. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us more about it, which is one of the things that is so surprising is that monastic men were the ones who were primarily meditating on Christ as mother. So that in and of itself, really, really fascinating, um, especially since they kind of held to Aristotle's view of women as having oh, sort of undeveloped yeah. male bodies. And, like uh, women you know, were the ones who clearly. had failed to be men, basically. Like the fetus. Yeah, right. Not enough, not men. enough heat. Yeah. yeah, not enough heat during that pregnancy. So <laughs> whoops, we've got a girl instead. So I mean, clearly a lot of misogyny here. And yet, um, because they were such characteristics, readers of scripture as they were really noticing um, the many feminine aspects of Christ um, that we have been talking about a little bit here. But um, yeah, can you just introduce us to this idea, this concept of Jesus as mother? Sure. So in the, uh, you know, around the 10th, 11th centuries, um, monastic writers and 12th century too, monastic writers began to uh, explore the imagery of Jesus as a mother in the New Testament. And so they looked at uh, images like in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus compares himself to a mother hen longing to gather his chicks mm -hmm. under his wings, looking at Jerusalem. They looked at the language of being born again, uh, of Christ laboring. Uh, and that's, mm -hmm. that's language um, from scripture. And then Paul uses that language too. And, uh, and then they also drew upon the, the wisdom tradition in, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, which is very often feminine inflected and, uh, and obviously Christ is the word Christ is the, the wisdom of God. All of that really fed their imaginations as they began to think about this idea of Christ as a mother. And they, uh, what makes it so interesting is that, as you mentioned, they were definitely not fans of women they were not they were not pro-women as we would say today um they had a very low view of the spiritual capacity of women um and mm -hmm. definitely saw men as being more spiritually capable more uh, holy in a lot of ways than women were so that they were the ones picking up on this language kind of first of all blasts apart some of our stereotypes about it i've had people say to me like well is this just like a modern day like feminist retelling of jesus or is this um you know kind of new age what's going on here and it's like no this is like the opposite of those things yeah. which makes it really very old yep mm -hmm. um and so they uh were really interested in it basically as a model for compassionate authority so these were bernard of clairvaux ailred of Rivo. these men were in authority over their fellow monks they were abbots uh, anselm of canterbury um, and they were, they were thinking about how to be in authority, but in authority with compassion and tenderness. And so that's what this image mm -hmm. was offering to them. And then, um, other folks start taking up this image too. um, contemplative writers, a lot of whom were women really were drawn to this image of Christ as a mother. And so you have writers like the French, uh, prioress Marguerite of Wont, who is, uh, 
um, writing about labor as uh, the passion and doing it very, describing it in a very vivid, detailed way. Um, I, I think something super interesting about how, how she was thinking about it is that she was actually thinking about some of the medieval conventions of birth while you would, uh, where you were giving birth, you would move around a lot um, in your room as a way of pain management, obviously, this being before mm -hmm. a time of, of pain management uh, through medication, as with today. And so movement of the body was really important. And she writes about how, like, with great compassion and, and, uh, and grief about how he was pinned to the cross and couldn't move around to relieve his pain as he gave birth. Mm. Um, so that's just fascinating. And then Julian of Norwich really goes the furthest with thinking about um, what this means for uh, both Christ giving birth to the church. So if we are his children, what, uh, what can we learn about how he feels about us? Um, and so he is she writes of him as kind of the the model of motherhood that he alone fulfills the office of motherhood is how she describes it so it's not so much that he's um that that she's drawing on human mothers as a way to understand him it's that he actually is the mother who um all of the best parts of human mothering are in imitation of him which is really beautiful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so she writes about him, uh, nursing us and raising us and disciplining us. And so even his discipline is, uh, loving as a good mother loves her child and not, uh, so, so if you think about, um, how people were thinking about motherhood and fatherhood in the middle ages, um, fatherhood would have been much more associated with, with, uh, discipline and sternness there was a more of a distance there and motherhood was the much more sort of intimate day-to-day -day tasks role in in a parent's life uh, i mean in a child's life so um she's really reflecting and thinking about this intimacy and this closeness and the physical bond between an say a nursing mother and an infant or between a mom uh, watching her toddler learn how to walk, seeing them fall down, um, running to mm -hmm. go pick them up. All these really homely images uh, that reflect the character of Christ's love for us and our mm -hmm. uh, dependent relationship on him. Yeah, I think in modern Catholicism, a lot of times it's sort of like, okay, you've got Jesus here as sort of the male example, and then you have the Virgin Mary mm -hmm. as the, you know, the ultimate mother. And that's a beautiful devotion, not taking away from that. But I think that there's something really interesting here about being able to access Christ himself in yeah. that um, feminine role, and that that sort of opens up a lot um, spiritually for people to be able to uh, you know, sometimes you'd rather talk to your mom than your dad. Like, you know, it's just yeah. like there's like a different relationship, um, sometimes a softer relationship uh, that develops between mothers and their children. Not always, but uh, I think just having that emotional switch in your head to be able to approach God in that way can be really powerful. Yes. And I think um, I think that what it does, too, is that it it gives us um, real divinity that has this feminine aspect and this feminine character where femininity is is present in Christ too in a really uh beautiful way that um 
So these these women writers, I think, were picking up on that and uh, not in like a, you know, a weird or heretical way, but in a way that is really encouraging as like, hey, women aren't like left out in the cold here in this incarnational image. Um, Jesus Mm -hmm. has characteristics of the best of both men and women. Um, And and whether that is in the lover imagery or in the maternal imagery, both those are are kind of drawing on that and and I think are encouraging in that way as as we uh follow Christ and um are being formed and yeah like you said Mary is more often today seen as the model of motherhood but writers that's the great thing about medieval writers is that they didn't they didn't see any problem with having both. Why wouldn't you love to have Mary as a mother and yeah. Jesus as a mother? Like what's, right. what's not to love about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. so that's a, a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that we get a little, um, we're very defensive these days, you know, cause we're like, Oh, is that some, is that okay to talk about? You know, is that, uh, you know, as you're saying, people are like, Oh, is that kind of new age? That must be a little out there because there are a lot of out there ideas now. So it's like, you want to, you just don't know where things are coming from sometimes. Sure. So I think, I think a lot of Catholics will read this and maybe be surprised, but maybe willing to kind of go along. You know, a lot of the people talking about these things are canonized saints, so this isn't coming out of nowhere. But I wonder about people in other Christian traditions, if you've talked to any Protestants or other people, like just how they've, um, you know, if this, if people are dismissive of this as sort of like, you know, a lot of times you hear, oh, well, the Middle Ages was just, you know, it was crazy times, indulgences, yeah. all kinds of nutty things were going on. This is just of the era. Um, and these ideas about Christ, that's just a little too far for me. Like I could see people saying. Oh, that. absolutely. And I'm, I myself am in the Anglican tradition. And um, I have, I think this is one of the biggest uh, challenges, actually, is um, I have to teach my fellow Protestants a lot about, hey, look, you've been actually fed this narrative that really only captures one tiny sliver of what is going on in the Reformation period and in the medieval period. So um, Protestants look at the Middle Middle Ages and really the vast majority, vast majority of them hear, oh, that's superstition, that's darkness, like that's the dark ages, like that's a really bad time for the church. I want to go back to the early church or I want to go back to the the reformers or whatever. And I'm like, okay. Um, so we've been, and, and even Catholics have received part of this history because we're receiving it via uh, the Renaissance who named themselves as the time of rebirth. And that was um, both Catholic scholars and Protestant scholars um, in agreement about the time period that came before it. And saying that, you know, we're, we're comparing ourselves to the Roman Empire, um, to the time when classical Latin was at its height, uh, the language was purer or whatever, we're, we're building empires ourselves now in the, in the rediscovered new world. So this is where we're associating ourselves and we're going to sweep away all this um, age of darkness. And so what um, Protestants really need to recall is that there that medieval christians loved jesus and they were following jesus too which is sounds so uncontroversial to say out loud but is actually quite shocking to a lot of people mm-hmm. um and that there's um some real 
real gifts there is something that I've um, really been trying to uh, share in this book um, that is, uh, you know, it's going to surprise Protestants. It's going to ask them to reexamine a lot of their uh, unconscious narratives about the formation of belief and the formation of the church uh, and the gifts of the medieval church. But I think it's a really good exercise for them um, and hopefully will open some minds and some uh, uh, ask people to reevaluate what they've been learning about the past. And, and the funny thing about it is that that helps in other ways too. You begin to become a better listener in the present to people speaking now instead of uh, you mention that uh, kind of the instinct of like closing yourself off of being very hesitant and which is not always a bad thing. Of course, some things, you know, need to be rejected, but um, I think we tend to swing too far that way when we are looking at these older images sometimes. So it's a good uh, discipline of uh, humility really is what it boils down mm -hmm. to. Yeah. And one thing I love so much in your book is that at the end of each chapter, you do ask readers to meditate on these images and you, how you can relate to God in a new way based based on what may have been shocking or surprising. Um, you know, it's not just a dry academic book. You know, it's very readable, engaging, well-researched. I very re much recommend it to people. And I think it will ultimately help people, as you say, engage uh, with their faith in a fresh way, no matter what sort of tradition you're coming from. I'm, I mean, even if you're you know, not religious at all, I think you would be surprised to learn about um, you know, people outside of religious traditions. I know because I'm, I'm a convert from a completely non-religious background, have a lot of assumptions about um, you know, what God is, who God is. And I think it would be helpful for a lot of people to encounter just how strange and beautiful uh, many of these conceptions are. Um, so I love that that is part of the book as well, that there's sort of this um, reflective action asked of readers as well. So if there is, you know, you've already said a little bit, but if there is one or one or two things that you just really hope that readers take away from this book, what would that be? Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head with one of them, which is that, um, you know, regardless of whether you're reading medieval literature or um, any books of the past, I think something that we have uh, unconsciously digested from our educations is that we're, we're reading for uh, knowledge, basically. We're reading for information. And what a lot of these writers have reminded me, and a lot of medieval artists, too, have reminded me, is that um, all of this is formative. And that we, I would love it if readers walked away feeling like, oh, actually, when I'm reading these works of the past, I'm not just reading them to know, I'm reading them to be formed and to be shaped in practices of love. Um, mm. And because that's, that's what they have been to me. Uh, I consider these medieval writers my teachers and my friends, um, which sounds really mm. cheesy and silly, but it's true. They've taught me so much and have opened up to me uh, a lot of self-reflection that I wouldn't have gotten to without them about my own context and about my own faith and the ways that I'm thinking about the character of God and who he is. So yeah. that's that's a, a big deal for me and something I hope readers walk away with. And then I just hope that readers walk away 
empowered to read the stuff of the past. I think a lot of times we're really intimidated. We feel like we can't do it, um, that, you know, we're uh, not well-equipped or well-educated enough. Um, and the fact of the matter is that a lot of these writers, uh, you you can pick up and wrestle with, and you don't have to understand everything to really take away value and to feel your, you know, roots the deep roots mm -hmm. of the past um, in inside the church. If you're, if you are a Christian, but also, um, Oh wow. I've made some assumptions about the way that the church has worked or people have worked or God has worked. Um, so regardless of your faith background, I hope that uh, this book can free up some of those questions for you and um, allow you to, to do some reflection. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it certainly does that. So uh, again, it's Jesus through medieval medieval eyes, beholding Christ with the artists, mystics, and theologians of the Middle Ages. Where is the best place for people to find the book? Uh, sometimes I know people say to go right to the publisher. Um, so I just wanted to ask the best place to find it. They can go, they can buy it anywhere that they like to buy books. Um, so if you are, you know, Great. local bookstores for the win. So if you have a local bookstore, yeah. you can... Uh, they might have it in stock or you can order it uh, via your local bookstore. Of course, it is on Amazon. It is in a lot of Barnes and Noble stores. Um, so it's out there. It's available. You can order it from Zondervan Reflective, the publisher, anywhere you like. That's great. Um, and where is the best place for people to follow along with what you're doing, Grace, online? I have uh, an Instagram at Old Books with Grace that I am fairly active on. I also have a uh, Twitter slash X <laughs> that is uh, what is it? Now? I don't know. I I honestly am like this is X. so confusing. Um, so I'm on there too at, at Grace Hammond PhD. Um, probably the most like fun places are my Substack that you mentioned, uh, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, which is a fun. Um, I enjoy doing that a lot. Uh, it's a monthly meditation on the books of the past and theology and the art and with some little fun things sprinkled in, some prayers and what I've been up to. Uh, and then I have a podcast, Old Books with Grace, um, which is I have different guests on talking about what uh, books they're doing or about a specific author. So I just had a Louisa May Alcott episode uh, earlier this week, different folks of the past, not just medieval to think about their context and how we can understand them and read them today. So great. And I will put links to all the above in the show notes so you can um, find it easily. Thank you, Grace, so much for taking the time. It's been such a delight to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>